2: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 25th, the 15 Candles edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is seven years old, and Leo, who is three and a half.
0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 15 today, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17
1: And I am Carvel Wallace, a journalist and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I am the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14.
2: Today on our show, we have a question from a listener who believes the teachers in her daughter's class are discriminating against kids of certain races, and another from a mother whose kindergarten-age daughter is already watching her calories. As always, we'll also have triumphs and fails, recommendations, and on Slate Plus, Rebecca will dish the dirt about saying goodbye to her son for the entire spring. Time first off for triumphs and fails. Rebecca, triumph or fail this week?
0: Yeah, I've got a relatively minor fail, but it's the kind of thing that makes you feel real bad. I pulled a bit of a 16 candles this morning with my son, Teddy. Um, It's his birthday. He's turning 15 today. And I totally forgot. I mean, I didn't forget globally. um, I got him a gift, which I'm going to talk about in recommendations, but I gave it to him this past weekend. I, you know, throughout the week, we have sort of talked about the fact that it's his birthday week, but there is so much going on with his brother and his getting ready for him to leave and all the things that are happening in our house around that, that I saw Teddy for like an hour and a half this morning. (laughs) It didn't even occur to me that it was his birthday. So he left for school. I said nothing about it. I ended up calling him and he picks up the phone. It was before homeroom or whatever. And he was like, what did I forget? And I'm like, you didn't forget anything. I am a terrible mother and I forgot to wish you happy birthday. And I'll tell you, it's the kind of thing that when your kids are little, you think like this will never happen to me. What kind of a horrible parent would forget about their kid's birthday on their birthday. It happens, and it makes you feel really, really bad. Um, I think he'll get over it, whatever. But still, it was a minor fail, and and one I'm not 100% over yet.
2: Wait, wait. So you forgot your younger son's birthday because you were too preoccupied with the exciting adventure that yes. your older son is about to go on? <laughs> and I, and you're framing this as a minor fail. I told you, it was <laughs> a 16 just, Candles just, just wanna,
0: moment. It was a 16 Candles moment, you know? It it's, wasn't it's like... It's pure
2: 16 Candles.
0: 100% Um, without all of the weird racist characters. But, uh, yeah, I... <laughs> I only say it's minor because Teddy is so easygoing about, about this yeah. kind of thing. I would be different if it were a different kind of kid. I know we'll move on. I know we'll move past it. But yeah, I feel super shitty at the same time.
1: This I, this is this is a minor fail. This is not a major fail. A major fail would be if you forgot his birthday entirely, didn't get a gift, didn't talk about it. Just <laughs> the whole thing completely didn't happen. That's not what happened. You got the gift. You knew it was coming. It was on your calendar. You just for a period of time this morning it wasn't forefront in your mind. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's is it great? No, but. It's a Thanks. Minor <laughs> Parenting
2: expert Carvel Wallace, do you recommend forgetting your child's birthday? It builds character. Yay, yay or nay? Should, should I forget my child's birthday? Yeah, keep uh, them humble. <laughs> I, l- listeners, uh, you can chime in on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fading. Let us know if you think that uh, forgetting your kid's birthday is a minor fail Or a major fail. Well, when you frame it like that.
0: (laughs) God. (laughs) I can't wait for those comments. (laughs) All right.
2: I'm going to go next because I I have so aggressively uh, humiliated Rebecca over this issue. Um, I also have a fail. Whether it's minor or major is not for me to say, frankly. Um, (laughs) Yesterday, no, uh, yesterday, as we're taping this, which was Monday, Leo had been sick. Uh, he On Sunday, he was sneezing and coughing a great deal and a lot of boogers running down his face all day. And then it's Monday and you're like, oh, I hope he's better because he's meant to go to school. And then Monday morning he wakes up and he sneezes and he coughs and there's a big booger down his upper lip and we just can't really justify sending him to school. So, um, you know, me and my wife had the very quick breakfast conversation. Like, is he going to go today? No, I guess he really shouldn't go. So I stayed home with him. Um, the nanny shows up, uh, after school. So at like three 30, so I, I have the day with him and I have a bunch of work to do and I'm trying to get work done. Um, and, We are generally quite restrictive about watching TV. Like, they get to watch, like, one show each after school or whatever, which is, I think, a reasonable amount of TV. But we never have let them just watch TV all day. He watched a great deal of TV, like, more than usual. (laughs) If if somebody is listening to this and says, well, my kid watches a great deal of TV and it's fine, I think that probably is fine. But when you take a kid whose TV intake is usually highly restricted – and then on a particular day, for your own convenience, you let them binge watch a whole bunch of television. By the time the nanny showed up, I had I had said, okay, you've watched enough TV. You're not going to watch any more TV. Uh, and he lost it. Mm. He was throwing himself on the ground. He was screaming. He was punching things. And he was just inconsolable in that horror. It, and the tantrum had been going on for like half an hour by the time the nanny shows up. And I was like, yeah, I, he's watched a lot of TV and now he wants to watch more and I'm not letting him watch anymore. I'm really sorry uh, to leave you with this. And then I just walked out the door and went to work and, and uh, she had to deal with this kid who I had put in just the most ungovernable and tempestuous uh, emotional frame of mind that uh, I've ever seen him in. Um, I came home in the evening and of course he was fine. He totally calmed down. But, um, yeah, in order to do what I needed to do, I put my kid in a situation that I knew was going only to lead to bad things. And it did.
1: Yeah. I mean, but what could you have done? Like, like, what is the alternative here? Like what, you know, like there is no other thing that you could have done. Right. I mean, you had to work. He had to be occupied. I mean, that's. You know, like, was there, like, I'm I'm actually, like, seriously, like, what what would have been some super parent thing that you could have done I in that think situation? I think it would have been, like,
2: really actively set up little activities for him to give him a little bit of attention and then go back to my work and then keep returning to him every 20 minutes to, like, keep him going without the constant stimulation of TV. I think, like, a really great parent who was at the top of their form— could maybe have done it with about half as much TV as I had to deploy.
0: But that's ridiculous because you would have yeah, got no absurd. work done.
1: Yeah, you would have got no work done.
0: It, w- it wouldn't have been a meaningful experience for either one of you because you wouldn't really have been doing an activity with him. I, no, it I, wouldn't think, have been meaningful. I think the real thing here is that sometimes it's just like with anything else. Even if you're the kind of parent who restricts TV occasionally, sometimes you're going to not restrict TV, and the real thing to do is like, how do we make it so that when that situation happens, it's not an untenable, horrible mess?
2: Yes, <laughs> but I'm I on would your love side with this
0: one. I'm on your side. You didn't fail. You did what you could in a in a tough situation, and you know, you were able to move on. You guys, you guys are cool now. So, what's the real long term, <laughs> you know, thing here? Wow,
2: well, I think one of the things we've learned here is that Rebecca is just a
1: nicer person <laughs> than I am. <laughs>
0: Who forgets her kid's birthday?
2: Who forgets
1: her kid's birthday? Well, um since the topic of forgetting kids comes up, I have a fail that I'm gonna pull out from the from the retrospectoscope. This is a fail that took place like in two thousand seven. But I always think about it. And Rebecca's um, forgetting the kid's birthday reminded me of it, and I think I'm finally going to share it. So when my kids were very little, when Ezra was in preschool and Georgia was in pre-preschool, she was still home with me. We would drop – every morning we had the same routine. We'd drive to Ezra's school. We would drop Ezra off. Georgia at that point was – oh maybe 18 months maybe a little bit older and she would go into Ezra's little preschool classroom and hang out there for a few minutes because they had like the little play kitchen and the little like wooden fruits and she would like just kind of wander around and do her thing while I chatted up with the teachers or with the other parents you know it was like maybe 10 minutes of that during drop off Georgia loved it Ezra loved it the, the kids loved Georgia She they would play with her and everything is fine So one day I'm doing that, and uh, there's this one parent, this one mom, who I was chatting up, and I have to be honest and admit, I thought she was kind of attractive. So we're making small talk, like nothing's going to happen, but I, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I'm, like, having this conversation with this mom that I think is attractive. So we're making small talk, and we're kind of, like, getting to know each other or whatever and laughing about this, that, or the other thing. And um, our conversation is so engrossing that it continues. So we leave the classroom. We walk down the hallway towards the (laughs) parking lot in in the back. We get to the parking lot. We're still chatting up, just really enjoying this conversation. And, uh... (laughs) And she's delightful, and she's a painter, and we're talking about artists and everything, I'm just really engrossed. And then I get all the way to the car before I realize that Georgia is still in the classroom. I Uh literally walked out of a classroom, leaving Georgia behind. (laughs) And I would say I was, you know, it probably was like 45 seconds where I like literally forgot. And I turned around and went back and Georgia was like, had no idea she was still playing with like wooden hamburgers or whatever. But I just, I think about that all the time. That's like one of the lowest moments of my of my parenting. And I feel, <laughs> I feel every day and I'm glad I finally got that off my chest because I've told people personally about that, but I've never admitted it publicly. That's a thing that happened sometime around 2007 and I still live with the shame of it.
2: What's great about that is, of course, Georgia is totally fine. So it's a fail that has no negative effect, but it contains its own punishment. That's exactly right. You had to tell that hot mom, <laughs> Oh, you're thinking I'm this cool, charming, great dad. And actually it turns out I have left my toddler behind in that classroom oh, just in order man. to walk out with you and talk oh, about your painting.
1: Oh god. So bad. So bad. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't That's work out the happened. way you hoped. I'm sorry.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Before we go on, uh, it's time to do the business. First off, if you have a question you would like us to address, give us a call four two four-255-7833 or send us an email to momandad at slate.com. Uh, you can join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Also, if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you should become a Slate Plus member. You can do that at Slate.com slash. Mom and Dad Plus. Slate Plus members get extra segments on this and other Slate podcasts every single week. Today we'll be hearing from Rebecca Lavoy on the ongoing saga of her son Henry's imminent departure to Washington D.C., where he'll be participating in the Senate Page Program. Uh, if you would like more of this show or more of our other great shows, sign up for Slate Plus. You'll get your podcasts longer with no ads and a bunch of other great benefits too. Also, you help us make these shows. Go to slate.com/slash. Mom and Dad Plus. And I would like to tell you about another great slate podcast that you might enjoy. It's called If Then. It's a podcast about technology, society, and power. Every week, April Glazer and Will Oremus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that really matters from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. And they don't always agree. Uh, If Then comes out every Wednesday, give it a listen and subscribe. All right uh time now for the three of us to try to dispense advice to other people um, we're so
0: qualified our, our first question
2: uh time for our first question oh guys I, i'm getting a call from my kid's school hang on one sec. okay
0: that's the Hello? worst kind of call
2: All right. Well, in case anyone was worried, um, they were on the roof, which is where they do recess, and they were playing Ring Around the Rosie. And when they came to the part about All Fall Down, she was sitting on the ground, but she... fell backwards a little too fast and bumped her head oh. <laughs> on a soft padded mat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the fact that that is an incident that then gets you sent to the nurse and then has the nurse give me a phone call yeah. is a sign of what is both Good and wrong with contemporary civilization, in a way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in any case, um, nothing to be concerned about.
0: It's, it's driven by what would happen if they didn't call you, and then you heard about it, and then you made a big... St- yeah, I get yes, it. It. It's,
2: driven, it's driven by liability culture. That's exactly <laughs> yes. right. Um, so you, you, you can all say thanks to liability culture for uh, interrupting <laughs> okay. our taping. All right, let's take our first question.
4: First, love the show. My question... We love our local public school because of how diverse it is. We have kids from all over speaking different languages and many kids of immigrants. The school is known for being very warm and has a history of serving underprivileged communities, but it is also a bit old-fashioned. In my daughter's kindergarten class, there's a pretty clear system of punishment. Green, yellow, orange, red. And from stories I'm hearing, certain kids are always in the red. We've already tried talking to the principal about this, but nothing has changed as far as we can tell. I'd love to hear more ideas of how to deal with this. It's clear from my daughter's stories that some kids are always causing trouble, and those kids have different colour skin. My impression is that the teacher slash school may be unknowingly treating kids differently based on culture and race. We don't have a strong relationship with the teacher, and I'm not sure how to approach this with her. Thoughts? Thanks.
2: Uh... Well, this is worrying, right? Um, and, and this seems like the kind of thing that, y- you know, one, one is often reading about uh, studies and the emailer describes this as uh, unknowingly treating kids differently based on culture and race. And, and my understanding is that that's exactly the kind of thing that happens constantly in classrooms and in all over the place. Uh, and so it, it presume you know assuming that there there's no like deliberate animus presu- assuming that it's actually just unconscious bias at work in a in a very striking and nefarious way then you got to raise this obviously this is something that you have to take up with the teacher or the school in some way um and it will be difficult to do that in a way that that actually prompts them to alleviate the problem and to address it because Uh, Nobody likes to hear that they're being racist when they don't think they're being racist. Um, But but you have to find someone in the school that you can talk to about it, whether it's that teacher, if you have a good enough relationship with the teacher that you think you can raise it or whether it's the principal or or somebody else in a position of authority there.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, she did say that she had hasn't have much of a relationship with the teacher, but she did talk to the principal and it didn't go anywhere and. There's another issue here that has to do with a system of punishment, and I'm not obviously pretending to be a child development expert here, but I do know that the fact that this emailer's kid is aware of what kids are green, yellow, orange, and red is problematic, and it's problematic in any classroom situation or in any group situation when you have an opportunity to label members of a community as better or worse than other members of a community. The one thing that I do know about kids, uh, and I feel like I am a little bit of an expert on, is that if you don't provide opportunities for clean slate and trying again, there is no development and there is no growth. So this kind of punishment system itself, this sort of labeling kids in a way that the entire community knows how they're being labeled is is problematic. Now, absolutely, you should have a conversation with the teacher. I hope what you don't get is the kind of defensive conversation that teachers sometimes feel um, like they want to have because they kind of get it from all angles or very often feel that way. I have a lot of teachers in my family, so I'm speaking from a little bit of experience here of that. You come in here and you try to do what I'm doing. It's really hard. It is. It's really, really hard. It sounds like this parent knows that. And I would just keep that in mind when you have this conversation. But don't underestimate here the potential power in numbers. I think this mom sounds like she is willing to do a little more, go an extra step, gather some research, sort of get some articles, podcasts, NPR stories, New York Times stories, whatever. Try to coalesce a little group of parents around this. Maybe talk about it a little bit, create a social media group around it, have an email conversation, have a meeting about it. It is really amazing what change can be made in a school or classroom environment when It's not just one parent speaking up, but when it is a group of parents working together speaking up. And if it's a cultural issue, uh, if it's a real shift, um, but I would also involve as much as you can, you know, parents of other races, parents of other cultural backgrounds, because the other thing you don't want to do here is sort of come in as like the white savior and try to fix an issue where you haven't actually involved the community that you're worried the issue is affecting. Um, So try in some way to spark a, a diverse and meaningful conversation around this with other parents. This is also why school boards exist. So if you have a group of people and you don't get anywhere with the principal and you don't get anywhere with the teacher, there are public meetings you can go to and bring this up. And the more the merrier when it comes to tackling this kind of social justice issue, especially in an educational setting.
1: Yeah, I would agree with all of what Rebecca said. I mean, I think the thing to keep in mind here is that it it like um it's a long you ha- you if you want to do this, you have to actually do it and it takes time. I mean, it's like it's not going to be as simple as like, I mean, ideally, we'd like it that we could go and have one conversation with the teacher and say, hey, I feel like this is happening. And the teacher will say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. I would never want to. And then everything changes. But that's not how that works. This stuff is embedded. It's systemic. It's it's multi and And the only way that it changes is through long and sustained action. That's one of the things about this. And so it does sound like there's, if this school holds itself to a certain um, cultural sense of values around how to treat people, how to be specifically anti-racist, because that's the thing, like not being sort of like personally feeling like you're not racist isn't really enough to counter racism as, I mean, if you, (laughs) that the current state of our country is, Ample evidence of that, that people feeling like they're not racist doesn't actually stop racism from happening. And what does help it or stop it from happening is um, sustained and organized action. And it doesn't mean you have to throw your whole life into activism but it does mean that you have to do some of the stuff that rebecca says you have to consider this something that you want to address on a consistent basis and using all the available means at your disposal i i would second i mean i guess to talk about this topic a little bit this is absolutely a thing that happens and i know that in our case you know the school that my kids went to for elementary school was very progressive school in a very progressive city with very progressive teachers. And my daughter was telling me about this phenomenon of essentially black boys getting in trouble all the time as, as early as first grade, maybe second grade is when she really started to notice it. And what we found, you know, because we had two kids that went through all five years of this, well, actually our son came in first grade. So we went, so we went through a collective of total of 9 teachers at the school maybe and that's not including like lunch teachers and after school program stuff but like classroom teachers we had we saw 9 of them operate give or take and it really did depend on the teacher there were some teachers who were clearly valued working in a way that was Against racism, not just like I, I'm not racist, but like I'm actively working to counter the existence of the system of oppression. And so the way that I deal with kids in my classroom reflects that. And we had some teachers who weren't like that. They were no, everyone was a good person. No one thought they were a racist. No one was a Klan member. But we saw very vividly the differences between the way teachers dealt with kids of color and and behavior in class. And so there is a way to do it um, that that allows kids to have an opportunity to um, to redeem themselves, so to speak. Uh, and public shaming generally isn't one of them. I think from what I've observed, it has to be used carefully and sparingly. And one of the dynamics, I just want to back up what Rebecca said, because one of the dynamics is that when the teacher identifies that a kid is a quote-unquote troublemaker, then all the kids begin to treat the kid that way. And mm-hmm. that, that happens, especially in kindergarten. And that kid begins to take that on. And all the other kids begin to take that on. And that is no way for a five-year-old to start their social experience in life. It just isn't. It's fucked up. Like it genuinely is. And I can say that from my own personal experience growing up. It's just not good. And so um, if you are really about this, then you kind of have to really be about it. And that means that you have to do more than have one conversation And and I'm not like this isn't to criticize, but this is to clarify, sort of like manage your expectations around what what conversation is going to do. It's not going to change the way things go, Uh, but there are tools at your disposal. Other parents are a key tool. I'm interested in the parents of these children. I bet you they feel this way on some level. Do you talk to them? Have you talked to them? Like, is this are these relationships that you're forming? And And if you do talk to these parents, my, you know, my advice wouldn't be to run up on them and say. Hey, I just we've never spoken, but I just thought I should let you know that your child is a victim of racism. I think that you want to build a relationship with people. Things things do change via community, but community has to be built. And one of the problems that, in my experience, kind of liberal, um, sort of white, do good, feel good people tend to struggle with is the building of community that allows actual action to take place. A lot of people think that you can just say something or feel a certain way or tweet something or post something, and that should be enough. But there has to be actual interaction. And it doesn't even have to be difficult, but it has to happen. I think it's really great that you want to address this. I think it's really important. And I think that um, I think that your community needs you to address this as well as you can, because these parents cannot do it on their own. They just can't. And you may also find that there's other things happening that you don't already know about to address this. I know that there was an African-American parents group at our school um, that, was, that was formed specifically in response to this issue. I think a lot of other parents didn't know that that existed. They didn't know that that was a thing. And so um, there may be things already in place. So my, my advice is to echo Rebecca and say, like, begin by building community and forming numbers um, and think of this as a longer term attack than just one conversation. I
2: want to ask you about one of the things that you said, Carval. You you said some of the teachers at your kid's school, in addition to just not thinking of themselves as racist, some of them sort of actively made anti-racism part of their teaching practice. How did they do that?
1: Well, from what I observed, I'm thinking of this one first grade teacher my son had in particular, from what I observed that she had a classroom that was kind of a legendary classroom because it was all these boys of all different races, but all of them were (laughs) kind of rowdy and, and poor Miss Richardson dealt with them as well as she could. I thought she was really amazing. But when I volunteered in the class, which is another thing I don't, I never advise people to, I don't. I don't like to tell people on the radio to volunteer in class because, like, you may have a fucking job. You don't have time for that. So I don't want to, like, shame anyone for that. But if that's something that you have time to do, that's something that I think works. So when I volunteered in Ms. Richardson's class, one of the things I noticed about the way that she dealt with kids is that she didn't publicly shame them. She didn't turn the class against them. She didn't put their names on boards. When kids had a difficult time acting out, she... um, she waited until there was a moment in her classroom management that allowed her to have an individual conversation with that kid. And, um, I felt that she, and I talked with her about this a little bit after, you know, like in different conversations we've had, I think she, she did that specifically because she knew that there was already an existing dynamic that was going to happen. She knew that those kids were already, the the non-black kids were already being primed by society to view young black kids as somehow representative of trouble. So, so she was actively trying to undo that. So like the normal baseline stuff wasn't going to be enough as far as she was concerned. Um, The other thing, maybe I'll see if I can even get her on the show because she's really cool, but obviously she works. So we might have to do that in the summer, but you know, the thing about class, I did teach in the classroom for a little bit and especially at the kindergarten, first grade, second grade level classroom management is a, really complicated science and teachers who are and that's everything from like how you talk to kids to what systems you put in place to how you organize time to how you prepare assignments to how you flow when things change uh teachers who are really good at it are really good at it and they and they have time to pull a kid aside and teachers who are bad at that usually they fall back on much more harmful and public ways of managing the kids behavior so it's deep. Teachers have to be good. You know, that's part of the challenge here.
2: Yeah. And that is a tough situation because in a, in a population as large as teachers, some of them are going to be terrific and some of them are going to be doing their best, but are not going to be terrific. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's a tough question of what do you do if you're encountering the problems of a teacher who, for whatever she's putting into it, is not doing the right thing. All right. Thanks very much for the email. I hope that's helpful. Um, Keep us updated. Let us know how it goes. Time to move on to our next question. Uh, This one from a caller named Kate.
3: Hi, my name's Kate. I'm calling for a mom and dad is fighting with a question. Uh, First off, I love you guys. You're great. I'm a new listener, but I get lots of good insight from you. Uh, My daughter uh, is currently in kindergarten, and the other day came home asking how many calories were in some food you were eating. And I asked where she had heard this from. And she said, a girl at school has learned about calories from her mom and her mom told her not to eat so much. Um, This has now led my five-year-old to say she only drinks water because it has no calories in it. Um, This is a great concern for me as someone who's trying to raise daughters who aren't um, worried about their body image as much and just have good confidence and aren't super focused on food, which I think is so easy to do. So um, I know this is going to be an ongoing thing. I'm going to be dealing with having daughters and just how I can raise them a certain way to help combat the media and the social pressures that are going to be surrounding girls growing up um, just today. So any advice you have would be great. Again, my name is Kate. Love you guys and all the best. Bye now.
0: I actually dealt with this with my stepdaughter when she was, I want to say like in second or third grade, she came home and started having these conversations. And there is some historical stuff in our family that um, we're really aware around eating disorders and the, the potential to have very unhealthy conversations around food. And I got a piece of advice from another parent and I tried it and it was a really great way to change the conversation just in the moment and then sort of open the door, which is that. I asked my stepdaughter what if she knew what a calorie actually was. And what I learned very quickly is that in the sort of lexicon of kid talk around food, the way that that's interpreted. And I think adults feel the same way who don't know a whole lot about, um, you know, chemistry and uh, nutrition, that calorie is like a thing that is in food, like it's a, it's actually a, a, like a quantity of something. And I said to my stepdaughter, you know, a calorie is actually a scientific term. It's actually a unit of measuring energy. It's how much energy it takes to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. Let's talk about how that measure of energy is a problem for you. And it just sort of like threw everything akimbo. Like it just changed the thing. And I, what I was trying to do and in, in starting the conversation that way and the piece of advice that I got that that worked was point out that. Sometimes we assign, and the easy way to assign a value of something that's good or bad is just to put a number on it. So, you know, you have four m and ms. that's good. You have seven m and ms that's better if you want to sort of you know make it really simple. But that the value isn't in the word. What it really means is are things good for you? Or are they not good for you? And to sort of point out that that arbitrary counting of something, actually, you know, can bear very little relationship to your measure of health, to what your body looks like, to how you feel about yourself, and to sort of change the definition of calorie, to sort of really show what it is. I don't know, that really, really helped with us, and we've had a lot of conversations with food over the years. Um, My stepdaughter will go through phases where she is eating very, very little, and I get really concerned, and I What I I think is important to do is to not not talk about it. If you feel like you've had the conversation and everything's good and everyone is comfortable with their body and seems comfortable with their own skin and is eating broadly the nutrition that you feel like they should be eating, you may find that the conversation comes back over and over again, because we'll have two or three years where I feel like everything's good with food. This isn't something need to worry about. But don't let it make you not be vigilant because that conversation in school is constant. Um, at the school my sons go to, I am aware of a competition uh, sort of environment around eating and not eating lunch in school and all this stuff. And we talk about it all the time. Unfortunately, it's a conversation you have to have. You have to have it transparently, you have to have it openly. And, and sometimes a little bit of science at the beginning of it can really help to set the framework. Take the feelings, take the friends, take the words like skinny and fat out of it and just say what it is you're actually talking about and then... Just use that as your, you know, icebreaker to reframe it and have it really be about science and health and nutrition. And and don't be afraid to really be transparent about what those social pressures can do and what the consequences are, even when kids are young. Because a lot of food habits are instilled in kids when they're really, really young, especially, unfortunately, especially girls.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I this is so difficult. Um, I having a daughter also this is a major and has historically been a major issue for us um i know that georgia struggles with this conversation on a regular basis and has for a long time and i agree with rebecca that um at the very beginning it really does help for kids to have a clear understanding of exactly how food works because i think a lot of times they actually don't understand so a calorie does become just this like physical thing that you are to be afraid of and that a calorie is bad and that no calorie is good and the more calories, the worse and the less calories, the better. And that is, uh, that of course, the kid brain is going to understand it that way. And so it does help to, um, to, to help provide some like nuance to how food actually works. And if you don't know, then that's part of your job is to go get clarity on that. So you can explain it to a kid and, and answer questions when they come up. One of the ways that we have thought about it is that, you know, this is a long-term issue. This is a part of raising a girl. And actually, as a side note, I would say that I think that this is—my son experiences some of this, too. Um, but uh, this is a long-term issue. And so one of the things that I try to keep in mind personally—and I don't know if this makes any sense or not, but I, my long-term goal with both of my kids— Is to provide them with enough consistent, kind, and um, long-lasting love and respect for them that they don't overestimate the extent to which they have to use other things to get love and respect if that makes any sense. So it's not that like people aren't going to try and get approval through other things. We all know that that's what we do. And we, it's not like I'm going to somehow be able to single handedly love my child into perfection. That's not a thing either. But one of the things I know from my own experiences growing up and from all the years I've spent working things out with myself and other people is that, you know, the, the feeling that in order for me to have value and approval, I need to accomplish this external thing that is the feeling that drives a lot of our more destructive behaviors. And there's no no moral wrong in that. That's just a fact of the way the human heart and mind works. And that is the feeling that causes so much damage in our lives, this feeling that I need to do this in order to be loved or to be liked or to have value. And so one of the long game things I feel like what we're doing with our kids is trying to, to whatever extent we can, which I don't know if it's ever going to be enough, trying to provide enough clarity solidity love and respect that they don't overestimate the importance of other things in terms of getting love and respect and that they're not willing to risk their lives and health health for what they think will get them love and respect this is what we're trying to do that's a mushy answer but like a lot of things in parenting it's a long-term game the conversation does not end i like drugs and alcohol I, and sex, I think this is a conversation that needs to be had a lot. It needs to be had a lot over long periods of time because their understanding of the world grows and changes with each passing year. And it needs to be had relatively explicitly. There needs to be a level of honesty about it. None of this means you can control it. And that's not what you can do. It is it is it is not something you get to control. But it is something that um, I think... Because it's so heavy, we feel afraid to talk about it with little kids. We don't want to introduce them to this ugly, terrible world of these terrible things. But my experience is that it needs to be just the opposite. We can have honest, age-appropriate, but honest conversations about what this stuff means and what it does to people and why it does that to people. And again, if you don't know the answer to those questions, then it becomes time for you to start looking more deeply into it so that you can be a resource for your kid. None of this is a guarantee, but nothing in parenting is a guarantee. This is a difficult situation, and I wish you the best of luck with it. All right. Um, my kids are
2: too young for me to have encountered this. Um, I will only say that I'm not looking forward to it. It seems terrible. Um, I will take the advice that you guys have just given to heart. Uh, and and I, I hope the caller will find it useful as well.
3: 18
1: plus.
2: Um, it's time for us to do recommendations now. Carvel,
1: do you have a recommendation? I do. I'm going to recommend something that we brought up a few weeks back, but it's just we, we, we had another example uh, interaction with it, and I realized how great it is, which is very simply the game Uno. I know that everyone plays Uno. Everyone already knows about Uno. I'm just going to put a plug in for what a perfect family-friendly game Uno is. Perfect combination of luck, strategy, and age. any, any age can find intrigue and interest in it. Um, I highly recommend Uno at any point um, that you feel like the family is starting to fall apart a little bit. Break out the old Uno cards, and you'll be amazed at how quickly things uh, get back together.
2: <laughs> nice. Rebecca, what about you?
0: I'm going to recommend. The, before I forgot about Teddy's birthday, I didn't, and I actually bought him a birthday gift. And uh, we um, the, over the weekend, I Teddy was with his dad until Sunday night. So sometimes when I get my kids' gifts that involve either assembly or batteries or it's something technical, like I'll take it out of the package and actually put the batteries in and play with it a little bit, just so that when they open it, it's not like a whole thing where this frustration around. I mean, they're old enough, they can do whatever, but I like to sort of understand what it is that I'm giving them sometimes. And this was one of those. And what ended up happening was that Kevin and I and Henry's brother to some extent, because he was around the house this weekend um, filming a thing for a school assignment, we all ended up playing with Teddy's gift for the whole weekend. And so by the time we gave it to him, we were all so excited about it because it was so awesome that he was even more excited about it. So what we gave him was an instant camera, which. A friend of mine had one I played with a little bit. I thought it was cool. Uh, there's a variety of them out there. Some of them are like 30 bucks. Some of them are like 100 bucks. Some of them like 300 bucks. Um, we got him this Fuji one. Um, and you, you know, just like a Polaroid And we were growing up, have to be careful. Take the photo of the thing you want. Be really deliberate about it because each photo is like 50 cents or whatever <laughs> when it comes out. This thing has really shown me and our whole family kind of a whole new but old world about being deliberate about how you frame things when you take photos, just sort of about media in general, that, you know, there was a time back in our day where we couldn't just take a million pictures and choose one. My concern when I thought of this gift for Teddy, I just really had the like instinct he would love it. My concern, of course, was that he would use up all the film in the first hour and then like it would be a while before he bought him some more film because it'd be really expensive. So he's still on the first roll of 10. That we put in, but he is carrying this camera with him everywhere, just kind of looking through it, like deciding: Is this worth it? <laughs> is it going to be good? Um, he did do a series of three photos of took a picture of the dog, and then took a picture of the picture of the dog in front of the dog, and then took a picture of the picture of the picture of the dog in front of the dog. So he's kind of using it like it's a digital thing. But it's not a digital thing. I don't know. It's just been really, really cool to introduce this piece of old school tech into our family. Our kids are super into it. We're super into it. It's just been really fun to talk about, come up with ideas about what we can do with it. Um, And I don't know. It's just been it's very infrequent that buying a kid a gadget also sparks conversation and joy and creativity and that's what's happening with this instant camera so if you have a kid who loves tech like teddy does complete computer addict video game addict digital everything addict maybe borrow or try out an instant camera and see what happens you might be surprised
2: nice uh I have a book recommendation. Um, Eliza is letting me read books to her again, which is one of the great joys of my life. And she's at an age <laughs> where I can now read her some of the books that I remember reading. I guess we already did that with the Beverly Cleary ones. But um, I don't know if anyone else remembers The Saturdays by Elizabeth Enright, a series of books about a family, four kids and their dad who who live in New York in like the middle of the 20th century. Um They start a club where they don't have enough money to do any of the fun things they want to do. So they start a club where every Saturday they all give all their allowance to one of the four kids. And then that kid gets to go out and have an adventure. So each chapter of the book is a different kid having a different adventure. Um, The kids are from like six years old to 13 years old. And it's just great. It's beautifully written. It's funny. It's like frightening in a manageable way. Like all of the dangers are manageable dangers and all of the kids get to demonstrate resourcefulness. And and the the period stuff is really nicely done where like Eliza occasionally will like ask me questions about like, well, how did that? work back then or how could a kid ride on the subway by themselves or all that stuff and um, gets us into really interesting things the book is The Saturdays the author is Elizabeth Enright it's the first of a series so um, I'm looking forward to making our way through the rest of them too
0: we've got like a theme going on this week of like bringing back old school stuff and our recommendations
2: yes that's right <laughs> vintage recommendations retro recommend retro commendation
1: uh, no it's right. okay you, you <laughs> no, were
2: fine you were fine yeah, that. we were fine with you <laughs> all right that's our show if you have a question that you would like us to address uh you can call us at 424-255-7833 uh if you want to let us know what you thought of the show if you want to let us know whose fail was the most humiliating fail uh you can go to facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting this week's episode of the show is produced by daniel schrader for carvel wallace and rebecca lavoy i'm gabriel roth and we will see you next week